This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension with your Extension Crop Report. Last week, the Crop Report was over soybean diseases, but what often looks like a disease is really a physiological problem, usually caused by a nutrient deficiency. We are quickly coming upon the soybean growth stage where nutrient deficiency symptoms become more apparent. The recent weather we've had hasn't been great either. The periods of huge rainfall events cause soybean roots to be drowned out, and then the soybeans don't have the deeper roots to deal with the receding weeks of dry weather. So, field flooding rains will actually make the soybeans more susceptible to drought later on, and nutrient deficiency symptoms are more likely. Phosphorus deficiency can be an issue, but potassium problems are more likely. Potassium plays an important role in plants. Potassium is part of many enzymes and processes, and one process is the opening and closing of the leaf stomata, which is the cell structure on the leaf that allows water to transpire. During drought, potassium is pumped out of the stomate cells, closing the leaf pores so less water is transpired and the plant wilts to protect itself during dry weather. Potassium moves into the plant roots by water solution, so potassium deficiency effect is compounded. Potassium deficiency causes yellowing on leaf edges and can eventually die back and will occur first on the older leaves. The time that I've seen potassium issues in the field, besides the dry weather, it is usually associated with very high or very low pH soils. Around here, high pH soil can occur in a strip along the north side of a gravel road. Farmers often think that it's disease or herbicide drift creeping into the field, but often it's potassium or iron deficiency. The flood drought cycle will make nitrogen and sulfur deficiency more likely as well. The nitrogen deficiency is more likely because rhizobium fixation is difficult when the roots are underwater and stressed. This will be more of an issue in double-cropped beans planted right before the heavy rains. Nitrogen deficiency will cause yellowing of older leaves, but plants can be carefully dug, not pulled, and inspected for healthy, internally pink or white soybean root nodules. Acidic soils will amplify the problems of poor root nodules. Sulfur will be a bigger issue simply because sulfur is a mobile nutrient that can be leached from the soil, and most of it comes from organic matter turnover. Young beans are more likely to have sulfur deficiency but can recover later on once the roots expand and soils recover. To put it together, the weather we've had this year makes soybean nutrient problems more likely. This will be amplified in acidic soils or commonly waterlogged soils. Potassium, phosphorus, nitrogen, and sulfur will be the most likely to be observed. The micronutrients of molybdenum and boron can be a problem in eastern Kansas but are less likely. Nutrient problems are identified in three ways, by looking at plant symptoms, taking a soil test, and by taking a leaf tissue sample. Tissue samples are taken at the top trifoliate leaf of at least 30 plants during flowering, and in the long season beans, we are coming up on that time frame. If you suspect nutrient issues in your field, please give me a call. The number is 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Calling open females and adding replacement heifers are strategies for maximizing herd reproductive efficiency. In most cattle herds, around 18% of the annual income is generated from cull cows. 
While there are several factors that can be considered when choosing animals for culling, reproductive efficiency and disposition are usually the highest ranking factors. A female with an attitude can create trouble and it's a highly heritable characteristic. For livestock operations to be profitable, cows, ewes, sows, or nanny goats need to maintain the annual goals of reproduction. For cattle, that usually means calving each year. And not only calving, but also utilizing maternal skills to raise the calf through weaning. Oftentimes, producers will cull cows in the fall, depending on the operation's calving season. Mid to late summer can be a good time of year to early pregnancy check those females and call any that are open or late bred. Veterinarians are able to check pregnancy status 40 to 50 days past conception with manual palpation. Using ultrasound technology, that confirmation can be seen as early as 30 days. Blood testing is even more rapid. Why would you want to confirm pregnancies now? Marketing is just one reason. Identifying cattle now that are going to leave the herd and enter the marketplace ahead of the flood of cull cows can bring you a higher price. Cattle are sold by the pound. So another consideration might be to hold those cull cows and supply them additional feed resources to help garner a higher selling price. Another motivation is a pasture drought situation. When cows are thin and feed costs are high, it might not make sense to hold cull cows longer and pay for additional feed. Removing the cull cows from the grazing pressure on a pasture may free up some grass for higher priority animals. For most operations, the discussion of selling cull cows is either followed by or precipitated by adding replacement heifers or introducing new bloodlines to a herd. According to K-State veterinarian Brian Lubbers, anytime there are new additions to any species of livestock herds, a 15 to 30 day quarantine is recommended. This quarantine is especially important if you're bringing outside animals into a reproductive herd. This confinement means no nose-to-nose -nose contact or opportunity for fecal or oral contact. While this isolation will allow some diseases to appear if the cattle are contagious, it may not show them all. There are some diseases that have a persistent carrier condition, like bovine viral diarrhea or trichomoniasis, making the animal appear healthy, but the individual still sheds the disease. The good news is that for most of these diseases, there are dependable tests to identify the carriers. Knowing the health status of the source herd of incoming livestock will help the producer and veterinarian make a herd health plan for those new animals. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Strauss, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Strauss, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. The Virginia opossum is a medium-sized animal with long, rather coarse fur, a sharp, slender muzzle, prominent, thin, naked ears, short legs, all about the same length, and a long, grasping tail covered with scales and few hairs. Opossums are in the family marsupial, which comes from a Latin word meaning pouch, and refers to the pouch on the belly of the females. 
Young opossums are born incompletely formed and are carried in this pouch while they continue their growth and development. Although most possums are gray, there are several other color phases. Some are black, some are brown, and a few are even white. Generally, the nose is pink, the eyes are black, and the ears are bluish black. The tail is gray, and the feet and toes are pink to white. Adults range in length from 24 to 34 inches and weigh from 4 to 15 pounds. In Kansas, the breeding season begins about the 1st of February. Gestation takes only 12 to 13 days. The first litter is weaned in May and the female mates again. The second litter is weaned around mid to late September. The average number of young per litter is 9, varying from 5 to 13. Opossums need watering areas nearby. Although they seem to wander aimlessly, radio transmitter studies indicate that some opossums live their entire lives on as little as 40 acres. Opossums are omnivores, which means they eat a wide variety of foods, including crayfish, frogs, tadpoles, clams, and berries. Generally, opossums do not cause humans much trouble. They live in urban and suburban habitats and sometimes get into basements, attics, sheds, and garages. Often they are injured or killed by automobiles as they cross highways. Opossums are known to host parasites such as mites, ticks, lice, fleas, roundworms, flukes, and tapeworms. They may also spread fungal, bacterial, and viral diseases. Opossums are not aggressive and flee when pursued. A common defense is pretending to be dead or playing possum. The frightened animal rolls over, becomes limp, and shuts its eyes, coming back to life at the first opportunity to escape. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a David Strance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. The crepe myrtle outside of the Gerard office has re-sprouted from the ground following the harsh winter we had and is currently flowering. This is a good example of a plant that can die back to the roots in cold but still recover. These plants can either be tender perennials or shrubs adapted to slightly higher hardiness zones than our area. The key to either of these groups surviving a particularly harsh winter is root protection. Many plants can survive the cold by dying back to the ground and regrowing once conditions are more favorable. Some common plants that do this include crepe myrtles, hostas, daylilies, and irises. Any plants you have that die back every winter could survive for years with proper care. Anything that you can do to protect a perennial's roots will give it a much better shot at pulling through harsh conditions. This will include mulching and proper watering. Mulch, especially wood mulch, will help regulate soil temperature by keeping the sun off the soil surface in the summer and trapping radiant heat from the ground in the winter. 
This small temperature difference can have a huge impact on the health of your plant in cold conditions, and with border plants could mean the difference between survival and death. The other thing to pay attention to is your watering habits. Plants that are watered too frequently can suffer from root rots, which will destroy the roots necessary to survive in winter. Watering plants immediately before a freeze can also damage roots, so keeping an eye on the weather forecast can help your plants stay hydrated while also minimizing the risk of water damage. If you do have woody plants that have died back to the ground, you will likely be left with some dead limbs. Once the plant has re-sprouted, the dead limbs can be pruned out. Tree and shrub pruning has a rule that you should never remove more than one-third of a plant's live growth in any given year. However, because these limbs are dead, they will not count towards this total, and removing the limbs will always improve a plant's aesthetics. You can remove these limbs at any point in the year without any risk to the plant, but do not put them into compost bins or piles. Wood does not break down like leaves or grass clippings, and they will take up valuable space in your bin. Herbaceous plants that die back to the ground will disappear from above ground for the winter. These leaves that die back serve no purpose to the plant and can be cut off at ground level. Unlike woody plant debris, these can be composted. The cleanup will become part of your garden routine every year with plants like hostas, irises, and daylilies. A good cutting tool will make this fall cleanup much easier. Many soil knives have a serrated edge that can be used to cut these plants off at ground level. A good soil knife is an invaluable tool for any gardener and should be in everybody's toolbox. These tools can be used for digging and cutting, and if you buy a model with a ruler on it, can also be used to measure the distances between plants and planting depth of your hole. You can find these tools at any local hardware store or garden center, or at any online retailer. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.